This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off today. Great to have you along as always. And lucky me, I get to hang out with our strategy panel once again. Always a spicy conversation on Tuesdays when we're joined by John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stins, former Toronto City Councillor and CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of the Toronto Office of Earnscliff Strategy group. Hello, panel. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Hey, Jane. Well, before we get to the latest on the We Charity scandal, I want to get your reactions to the legislation approved last night in the Senate, which extends the emergency wage benefit subsidy until at least December, as well as one-time payments of $600 for people with disabilities. And the minority liberals are saying that the wage subsidy is the cornerstone of the COVID-19 recovery plan in the fall. Karen, I'll begin with you since this may affect you at Variety village. Yeah, thank you, Jane. I, I actually agree. The Liberals um, are right to extend that wage subsidy. I can tell you that over the past five months that we've been closed, the wage subsidy was the only thing that kept us going uh, for our employees. So it, And we our revenues are down by 80% and uh, likely to stay down for some time as people, because uh, we operate a gym, of course, um, as well as day camps and other programs. So while we reopen our facility, uh, we're not looking at full capacity for at least another year. And that wage subsidy is critical to help us keep our employees working. Have you had to let go of employees uh, who've since gone on CERB or are they mostly waiting to come back? Yeah, we let go 150 employees and some are on CERB. Uh, Some we were able to recall for camp and some we will be able to recall when uh, we get the go ahead to open um, our fitness facility area. But uh, there's a number of employees we're just not going to be able to to recall because we just don't have the work for them to do. Right. Uh, John, what are your feelings about the wage subsidy and this being the cornerstone of the recovery plan? Yeah, I think I think, Jane, that the government is right on this. I uh, I've often um, as much as I'm critical of the government at times, I've also been very, very complimentary of them and how they've handled this at the beginning. And, And one of the programs that I thought was was smart and did save a lot of jobs and, and companies and organizations and charities like Karen was just alluding to that, that saved them was the wage subsidy program. So the fact that they're extending that is, is good news. Um, I think that, you know, there's a couple of other things that I, I would say that I would compliment the government on. One is, is that the second one is the fact that they're still keeping the U S border closed. I think that's an important, I think more and more Canadians want it closed. And then, and I actually thought, I thought that the smart move, was not to allow the Jays to have uh, to come to, to, to Toronto. I think that was a very smart move given mm-hmm. what's happening with the ML, MLB. But but on this issue, though, the wage subsidy is the one that is most effective. I think the, the one that they have to really kind of look to and, and, and try to curb is, is the CERB, is the emergency relief one, where I think that obviously as much as it helped at the beginning, I think it's it's proven to be a bit more of a hindrance to, to small businesses and to companies where, you know, they're finding that more and more employees that have been, have been you know, unable to work 
are are relying on that more than than the opportunity of going back into uh, the offices where they're allowed to. So uh, it's a, it's a fine balance between the two programs. But this wage subsidy one, I think, is the right call and 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 the one that has actually saved a lot of businesses from from closing. Charles, it seems like there is a unanimous approval and endorsement of this wage subsidy continuing until December. At Always least December. Good to see unanimous praise for the federal government. Let me tell you that. Right <laughs> now. I, I would also note. I'm not sure if John is saying um, curb the Serb, but it is um, arguably the last big legislative item that the federal government has to figure out in the coming weeks because um, Serb benefits uh, expire for a good number of Canadians at the end of August. And there's a delicate legislative two-step that's required to not only extend the CERB, which, as people know, is the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, but also um, uh, coordinate it with uh, employment insurance as well, because obviously uh, there have to be some uh, provisions made to get people off the CERB, perhaps in a graduated fashion, um, in a way that encourages folks to get back to work um, as jobs become available, but I, but any notion that we should just curb the CERB because of the numbers game of um, boy, we're spending too much on it, really uh, neglects to see the plight of a great many Canadians who've lost their jobs. They haven't benefited from the Canadian employment wage, the, the employee wage subsidy, and they are without they are without means at the moment. And so this this program is absolutely critical. Charles, it would be interesting to know what percentage of Canadians who are now receiving the CERB would then be eligible for EI come September. It really depends where you are in the process when you first qualified for the CERB and um, also what you're making. And um, and there are also legitimate provisions around, you know, do you, ha- do you have the opportunity to return to work? Um in in what can and, and this is where it starts to get tricky because you know we are seeing jobs coming back we've seen some robust growth in terms of employment numbers but we also have folks that are hamstrung by question marks around schools coming back um, if schools aren't back full times then what do parents with small children do um, and uh, so, and what happens if an employee just simply doesn't feel safe returning to a situation where where they could conceivably contract COVID? I mean, it's these are very very tricky issues. But there's there's nothing about the the situation involving the pandemic that's simple. Uh, I'm with our strategy panel, our Tuesday strategy panel, Karen Stintz, Charles Bird, and John Capobianco. It's Jane for Libby. And as we go through the topics, you're invited to call in and offer your opinion as well. The numbers are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Uh, just one more round on the recovery plan for the fall before we get to the WeChair. Um, which is either a distraction or uh, a very important item, depending on uh, how you regard that situation. Uh, But Karen, in terms of coming from your perspective, what else would you like to see happen this fall that would benefit Variety Village and benefit other organizations? Well, I think that a decision needs to be made on the schools. And uh, it... it, um of course, it's complicated. There's lots of things to consider, but, you know, we've also 
had the benefit of being able to operate day camps for 90 kids at Variety Village. And it has been uh, quite an amazing opportunity for the kids to be back at play, for the parents to know that their children are in a safe environment where they can be playing with other kids, and uh, that relief for the parents that uh, at least during this eight-week period, there is um, an option for them. And so it, it um, you know, of course there are risks and, and they need to be mitigated in opening the schools, but I think if the government takes a position that the schools will reopen and then works across all sectors and partners to figure out how to make that happen, I, I think that it is a, a goal that we can aspire to. Um, and I think that opening the schools will be critical uh, for us to move forward. Um, and I, and I, I, and I, I partly say that because I, I don't believe that there's going to be a vaccine that will be made available to us in the near term. And that part of our strategy of moving forward is living with this virus for some foreseeable time. And we need to be able to, to figure out how to navigate through that um, and get our kids back to school. John, this seems to be a big focus of conversation. Just in the last couple of days, we've pivoted to talking a lot about the school situation. It's only five weeks away. We are actually dedicating the second half of Fight Back to the school reopening. You, do you also feel that it goes hand in hand, the economic recovery, with having uh, the children being back in the classroom? Yeah, without a doubt, Jane. I, it, it, I'm hearing it all the time. In fact, I just, uh, I just had a a patio breakfast uh, with uh, with some some colleagues of mine, some friends uh, this morning. Uh, of course, because Toronto, of course, is still in uh, in stage two, so we can only do patio uh, uh, <laughs> gatherings. But but you know, both parents who who said that they you know they're really really strong on wanting to and, and wanting to make sure that that kids can, can go back to school. They they understand the health and uh, and safety risks, obviously, and they know that governments will make will do what they can to ensure that. But it is pivotal for them. Given the fact that as as things are opening up and as businesses are starting to to get back, that that parents have the and it's not only just for them to be able to get back to work and, and get into some routine, but also for the for the health of of, of kids, not only from mental health perspective, but also just educational. You know, and, and we saw that that online work online classes at the beginning when when COVID was at its worst. Uh, was effective, and, and you know we heard, heard cases where some of it were successful, some of them weren't. But it was just it was just erratic in some cases. I think that online uh, schooling is something that's going to be happening down the road, no matter what happens. But uh, but I do think though this government is committed to making sure kids go back to school. I know the minister is going to be making an announcement, you know, soon. Uh, with respect to to how it's going to look like, and, and the school boards have been working with them to try to determine how best to do it. I, and I think it's going to be regionally based as well, much like the opening of the economy, where some school boards in some regions where COVID is not specifically a uh, a huge threat uh, may have a bit more access and, uh, to school classes versus those in Toronto and Peel were a bit more dense, where where they uh, the density of of of, of the kids may find it to be a more of a hybrid. So I think all of that is, is going to sort of come out to play. But all to say that school is going to be hugely important and a lot of focus for this government over the next, uh, well, couple of weeks, obviously, because it, you know get, we're almost in August, and, and that's when you need to get things and plans in place for, for parents to be able to determine what to do with their kids uh, come September. Charles, how will that dance work between the federal government and the provincial governments, uh, which are in charge of education and the school system? Well, we've seen um, we've seen some great cooperation as recently as an announcement yesterday. Four billion dollars um, announced, uh, joint funded uh, between the federal government and the provincial government for municipalities and for uh, transit. Transit funding to follow 
a little bit later down the line. In terms of schools themselves, I mean, they, they fall squarely into provincial jurisdiction. Obviously, federal officials will have thoughts with regards to the best way to go about this. But, you know, when it comes to the schools issue, or when it comes to professional sports or, you know, indoor dining, um, it's not the political leaders, it's not the teachers, it's not the unions who are making the calls. I mean, ultimately, it's the virus. Um, there are things we can do to mitigate and spread sensible things, wearing a mask, social distancing. You know, a lot of people who might be unduly exposed to coronavirus should stay home. Um, and a lot of people choose to anyway. But ultimately, it's what the virus does that will dictate our actions going forward. And, and that builds in a level of uncertainty that I, I just really haven't seen in my political experience before. And it's fascinating to watch various governments stakeholders try to navigate their way through this this minefield. It, it absolutely is fascinating. And since you brought it up... Minefield. Uh, pardon? Mm-hmm. Minefield. Time yeah. for the minefield. Yes. We charity. Uh, the we, uh, well, I, I'm sort of split between you, br- you brought up the provincial politics and the municipal money. Uh, so I'm split between going down that path and the we charity. But let's go we charity, um, <laughs> which is before a parliamentary committee. Today, we have the co-founding brothers, Craig and Mark Kielberger, appearing for questions. Karen, what are committee members looking for from them, from the Kielberger brothers? Well, you know, I think that um, really the focus really shouldn't be. I, I don't think there's any more surprises as that's where I'm going. I mean, that that it, it looked like it was a uh, decision made with some haste, perhaps. Um, that be you know, in, in a desire to quickly help students get some money um, to, with a charity that was well known by the government, uh, who said they could do it. Um, there was some irregularities, no question. It was a strange time. Um, I, I think moving forward, the questions are really. Um, is there a program or is that billion dollars going to be reallocated to a different purpose? And, you know, when you look at the We Charity, they're undergoing their own review. They've lost a number of sponsors. But the fallout has actually been really quite tragic. And um, and I, I don't know that there's anything more the committee needs to ask of the charity. I think it's more of a question of what happens to this program. And, um, and, and We is going to have to go through some soul-searching and reorganizing. And I don't think that can get done in front of a parliamentary committee. Right. And time is ticking for this volunteer student program to get going. Uh, John, in, in essence, it may not end up happening at all as a result of all this process. Well, and that's the tragedy of this of the scandal is the fact that that part of it, uh, the student loans and the, and the, and is actually delayed. And, and who, who knows if it's going to get, as you say, Jane, going to get up and running. Um, just given the timing of it all, but I'm, I'm sure the government's going to work hard to try to deliver it. But uh, there's a number of issues, I think, at hand here today. One, one is, you know, for the Kilbergers themselves, the risk uh, for them and the reputation of their organization is, is key, you know, not notwithstanding the fact that they've lost some sponsors and others are probably waiting to see how this unfolds to see whether or not they're going to continue to sponsor the charity. But, you know, I, I think what we're seeing is uh, new relevance Relevations, uh, relevations on a on a regular basis. Um, you know, we just found out that they were working on this plan before the government even approved them. They were working on some sort of 
you know, issue or, or design of, of this organ, of this thing. So I think the committee is going to ask some very pointed, especially the opposition members, obviously, are going to ask some very pointed questions with respect to the timing, what they knew about this and who contacted them about the program. Like, you know, Karen says that there, there's nothing new that might, might be exposed. I think there might be some truth to that, although I think that's what this committee uh, is largely, um, uh, the, the opposition members of the committee are largely hoping for, is some new bits of information that tie uh, sort of a narrative together that something just fishy has been going on here for some time uh, and that it'll hopefully stick to the, to, the, to the Prime Minister, which of course the Prime Minister and his Chief of Staff are going to be uh, in front of the committee tomorrow, I think, or Thursday? Thursday, uh, yes. Thursday. So, you know, that'll be another highlight. But I think coming out of today, you know, the, the brothers, the, the co-founders have a lot to lose potentially with their reputation and how things are evolving and the opposition have a lot to gain uh, if there's new revelations that something happened that, that hasn't been reported just yet. So uh, it, it'll, be, it'll be much watched by, by the political uh, class. I think a lot of Canadians will be tuning in uh, to it as well because it's been certainly, uh, uh, you know, broadcasted by the media throughout the last number of days. So interesting times for sure for for the WE charity and for the Liberal government. Charles, what kind of clarity can the Kielberger brothers bring to all of this? You know, Jane, I think that depends um, largely on the line of questioning that we see from the opposition and specifically the Conservatives, because they they have some difficult choices to make. They will want to develop a line of questioning that, that basically sheds light on what they think is at hand here, uh, the nature of the scandal, as it were, as John would call it. You know, I think we're a little bit beyond, you know, oh, the Prime Minister's mother got this amount and the Prime Minister's brother got that amount and the Minister of Finance got a free trip. Um, I mean, if that's the extent of the scandal, um, that there's not a lot of legs there. And the government, despite a very shaky start on this issue, um, has done a lot better over recent days. And I think that the decision to put out the Prime Minister and Ms. Telford, his chief of staff, was a smart call, not an easy call. Um, but, um, you know, having him owe up, uh, you know, the, the whole notion that the buck stops here is very important. The other thing that, so if, if I'm the opposition, I've got to be, I, I think the most logical place to go is to follow up on the notion that somehow, we was in big trouble financially and that all these fantastic services they had in place were going to be lost, probably for reasons that Karen would understand. I mean, COVID has had just such a major impact on not-for-profit and charitable organizations. And, you know, was is the government guilty of trying to help out We Charity or help out the Kielbergers, who are clearly friends of the Prime Minister? And that's a really difficult strategic call. And the other problem the Conservatives have is that they just consistently overshoot the mark. I mean, Polev is on the record calling Justin Trudeau a dictator over this. I mean, a dictator. How ridiculous is that? Andrew Scheer has pronounced the Prime Minister a criminal. I mean, it's just classic overreach. And so we'll see how much of their attack has already been blunted by their previous statements. Of course, I want to hear from all of you uh, now on what we're expecting the committee members uh, to ask the prime minister on Thursday and what Canadians are looking for from him in turn, because uh, even as recently as yesterday, a new Angus Reid poll came out saying that the WE charity scandal continues to impact the prime minister's approval rating. Karen, I'll put that to you first. 
I think it does. Um, I, I think that um, there's there's lots of questions about how this contract was awarded, and and uh, you know the government, the the politicians rather, have been standing behind the fig leaf that this was a bureaucratic decision. And as we learn more and more, we realize well, the, the bureaucrats recommended it, but there is nothing typical about this contract. And so it it all does beg the question about you know really. Um, was the motivation really to save a charity that was in trouble? And if so, that's not how you, you use taxpayers' money, to be quite honest. Um, and, and even the whole upfront payment is atypical. Uh, we, uh, Variety Village has received federal funding uh, for projects, and the more typical contract structure is a reimbursement model, where we pay and then we get reimbursed. Um, the government doesn't give money upfront. And the reason they don't is because then they can't ensure the money's being spent the way it was intended to be spent. So there's, there's, you know, all, but again, going down that road, I'm not sure we're going to learn anything more than what we know. And that this was, this was a contract given to the friends of the prime minister. And that's not a good use of a billion dollars. And, um, Unless, unless, of course, they're the best organization to uh, to map out a program like this. Yeah, but even quite frankly, if, even if they were, um, they should have done extra due diligence only because these kinds of questions are likely to come up when it's about a, when it's a billion dollar contract. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that they're um, and then the original, you know, comeback of oh, well, we're just trying to help some, we're just trying to help students. That didn't help the government. And now we is imploding, unfortunately, because of the sponsors that are removing their funding because they don't want to be associated with uh, this type of controversy. It's now just, it's just, it's been, you know, the law of unintended consequences when things aren't done properly. And and I think it is a lesson for the government that they, they, they need to do things properly. Even in the age of COVID and a rapid response and needing to get money out the door, you still need to follow a process. Yes, absolutely. Uh, John, what are your thoughts? What will the committee ask the prime minister and his chief of staff? And what are we expecting to learn from them? Well, I think, you know, again, more more pointed questions with respect to the timing and, and you know, why he felt and, and did he know with respect to the bureaucrats' decision and, and how, you know, the fact that they, he kept, you know, they, they kept pointing to the, to the, to the bureaucrats are the ones that sort of made the recommendation and, and why weren't there other firms because our other charities, because we, what we've seen in the, the media over the last little while or other charities have come up and said, hey, look, we could have done it. Nobody asked us. And I think those are kind of questions that will, will kind of stick and, and who knew what and why uh, did, did you know the minister of finance not recuse himself? I think those are the kind of questions they're going to ask the the, the prime minister and, and his chief of staff, um, uh, Katie Telford. I think this this has a huge um, risk of hurting this government. We're seeing the polls uh, take effect already. Now it, this has happened in the past with with the Aga Khan uh, incident in the first term of this liberal government where uh, there was ethics ethic violations and, and, and trouble. And then, of course, with the SNC-Lavalin, and we've seen the liberals, again, take a dip in the polls and then recover. Uh, the only difference, I'd say, Jane, is that that was in a majority government where the government had the benefit of time to be able to recover and, and had the majority, quite frankly, in parliament to be able to recover that and, and move on to other issues, whereas here, you're in a minority government, and, and the fact that they became a minority government was a result of some ill-played, um, you know, campaign issues that, that hurt the Liberals, which, which caused them to be in a minority government. And that is a very different dynamic, because you've got the opposition parties already taking aim at this government over this program. And if they're not satisfied with the answers, um, they run the risk of, of going into an election when they're not prepared to go into an election, when the polls are showing that they're still 
hurting, and and that's going to affect them. So this could have a, a bit of a lasting, uh, you know, uh, effect on them, depending on how the Kilbergers do today and how the Prime Minister and his Chief of Staff do on Thursday. Charles, is that why the Prime Minister is appearing before this committee, because of what John is suggesting, the minority government element? No, I think the Prime Minister learned a thing or two from um, previous instances where his government has gotten itself in hot water. And one of the things he's learned is that he's the guy. The buck stops with him. He's the boss. And he's the one who has to accept responsibility and uh, and conduct himself appropriately. Um, I keep coming back to the nature of the scandal and, you know, why it is that, you know, if, if it was the prime minister who sort of said, okay, I want this amount of money going to we specifically, I ask myself why. I mean, because they sponsored, because they paid his mother for a few events or because they paid his brother. I mean, it just doesn't add up, right? It doesn't pass the sniff test um, in terms of, you know, why would they orchestrate this ornate spending program for any other reason than to get kid money to kids um, in very, very quick fashion? It may have been a hasty decision. It may have been ill-conceived. Um, but, um, you know, I think the prime minister is smart getting out in getting out like this. I think they had a rocky start in the early days of this particular episode, but they've now, I think, found their mark. And if they can get through this week, they should be okay. I look forward uh, a week from now hearing all of your opinions about how uh, the questioning and the comments go with the Prime Minister on Thursday. In the meantime, we'll switch gears with our strategy panel, Karen Stins, Charles Bird, and John Capobianco, and turn to provincial politics, which is almost exclusively revolving around managing the COVID-19 economic recovery. Uh, Charles, you mentioned there briefly about money for municipalities. Karen, there seems to be, whether there is or there isn't, certainly on the surface, uh, a great mutual admiration and respect between Toronto Mayor John Tory and Premier Doug Ford. Yes, it is. They've come together quite well to manage uh, this uh, situation. And it's good to see, I think, that the people of Ontario and Toronto have benefited uh, from from the, the close relationship that they have developed in, in communicating in response and su- being supportive of each other's messaging and actions. And so um, I, I give a lot of credit to where credit's due. John, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I go even further. I think that, you know, generally speaking, throughout the whole COVID process, we've seen all three levels of government, municipalities, the provinces, and the feds all working well together, which I think has is, is made us, um, you know, one of the countries in the, in the G7, certainly, inter, you know, just globally, um, being able to handle this, this pandemic well, you know, given what we're seeing to our neighbours in the South. Um, but I, I, more specifically, I think the fact that the Premier Ford and, and, and Mayor Tory um, have been working well together is very key because a lot of a lot of the Toronto, you know, Toronto uh, needs to be successful, needs to recover from this from this economic downturn as a result of this pandemic in a way that that you know will help not only the province but help Canada. So the fact that they're all, you know, the four million four billion dollars that are going to the municipalities, you know, two to the municipalities and then two to the transit. I think is very key and it's needed and I think will help the city of Toronto, but ultimately help the province. Panel, we want to get uh, Zoomer radio listener in here. Clay and Ajax, you want to talk about uh, John Tory. Uh, hi, Jean. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Go ahead. Uh, my my question, I guess, is uh, like the announcement there on the news on uh, 740 about the $4 billion that's coming out and John Tory's hoping that he gets $1.3 billion. Yeah because he doesn't want to raise taxes. Well, my, my question is this. I mean, uh, do you remember the uh, the scandal about the uh, 
the, the the highway plowing and the city plowing thirty three million dollars. The the developer that cut down all the trees it could have been fined three million dollars. The guy that just had the party now and had two hundred people there that could be fined a hundred thousand dollars. We never hear the end result of what happened with that. There's a house that was listed and it was on the radio on news last night. There's a house listed on Euclid Street that's about the size of a storage shed and it's listed for one dollar less than a million dollars, Libby or Jane. What are they paying in taxes? You know, you always hear about that they don't want to raise the taxes, they don't want to raise the taxes. I live in Ajax, and well, my taxes are probably double what they're paying in Toronto, and I don't have half the service they have there. Okay, I want to get Charles' thoughts on, on this. Has John Tory negotiated a good deal for the taxpayers, property taxpayers of Toronto? Uh, I have to say, the caller took who I was going to talk about how I went to this great house party on the weekend in Brampton and had everything <laughs> like a valet. I was waiting. Grapples, I was waiting. the bottle. Um, yeah, I think he's. You know, he, he could not have found a better moment to come to some uh, denouement with uh, with um, the premier. Um, this is obviously critical times. I think when. Um, we look at what's happening south of the border and we look at the kind of political calcification that's happened among uh, the political parties and on issues as simple as whether it's appropriate to wear a mask. I think we should be like bending over backwards to thank and praise our political leaders federally, provincially, municipally for the tremendous job they've done in setting aside politics and, and really focusing on the job at hand. But I, I totally get what your caller is talking about in terms of um, the taxes that are paid by Toronto homeowners. One of the advantages of, of being in uh, the city of Toronto is that the, the property owner base is enormous. And um, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, we actually pay less taxes than folks in Ottawa when it comes to uh, property taxes. But that's because there's just so many more of us. In terms of the in terms of how the money be, will be doled out, I get that Mayor Tory wants one point two, one point three billion of that money to make up for the shortfall. There are established formula in place with regards to how this money will flow. A lot of it will be per capita. And, you know, and so uh, I. I, I don't blame the, the mayor for, you know, looking to, to recoup those dollars. I know I'm pushing our time just a little bit here, but our, I want to know from the three of you, as I am also, we're all Torontonians. Karen, what do you think? Are we going to hear from the premier tomorrow that Toronto gets to go to stage three? Oh, well, I, I would certainly hope so. Um, you know, we've uh, we've got our numbers down. I think it was reported we have five in Toronto. Six today, yes. Five yesterday, six, six, six today. today. Yep. So I, I think that uh, Torontonians have, have met, you know, have demonstrated that they're committed to um, living with the protocols and that we're going to do what we need to do in order to safely reopen. So I, I would expect that we'll be able to move into phase three and, uh, and, and look forward to that announcement. John, your thoughts? I agree. I think that, uh, you know, he traditionally waits at least a couple of weeks uh, when he opens up stage three with other areas or stages with other areas before he hits Toronto to see what the numbers are. The numbers are looking positive. I think that you'll you'll probably hear an announcement this week with respect to when Toronto will enter stage three. But I also think, though, that when they do, it'll still be with some level of restrictions when it comes to bars and that kind of stuff. So um, I think I think that that'll be a welcome news. And Charles, final comment to you. Yeah, I think all of that makes sense. Um you know, obviously, the, the the new reality is that we have to be prepared for a second wave, and we have to watch those numbers like a hawk, and we all have to keep doing pretty much what we've been doing, social distancing, compulsive mask wearing, 
and being fully cognizant of the fact that this virus is unbelievably virulent, has been responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths around the world, um, close to 150,000 in the United States alone, and it's not done by a long shot. And so we really, really have to stay vigilant and, and people have to keep doing what they've been doing so well, which is taking it seriously and, and doing their part. Always informative, always entertaining. Strategy panel, thank you so much once again. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Charles Bird, Managing Principal of the Toronto Office of Earnscliffe Strategy Group. John Capobianco, Vice President, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann-Hillard High Road. And Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.